Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, brought to you by the spectacular Yamaha R7. It's a new generation of super sport machine. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Nick DeSena recently spent the day in Malibu with the 2023 MV Agusta Dragster RRSC America. This is the limited edition model with that lovely red, white and blue livery. Nick takes us through his thoughts on the Dragster specs and the ride, and also includes his thoughts on how the proprietary SCS automatic clutch works and fits into the Dragster persona. John Ulrich and his son Chris started the Road Racing World Action Fund non-profit in 2001. The goal was to buy air fence rider protection for use around American racetracks. <laughs> they have been spectacularly successful. One of their main ways to raise money is by having ex-superbike pro racer Chris take guests on fun two-up superbike rides around the track at each round of the Moto America series in exchange for a donation. Actually, he's raised over $60,000 so far. TJ Adams got to experience this thrill ride of a lifetime at Brainerd Raceway and she gives us her impressions of what it's like to cling on for dear life at 160 miles per hour. Spoiler alert, she absolutely loved it. You can check out her onboard video on our YouTube channel. In our second feature segment, Kat McLeod of Leod Escapes comes back to chat with TJ about traveling in Europe, including some handy gear and packing tips. The always lively and very entertaining Kat gives us the do's and don'ts of how to travel and hopefully avoid making a complete fool of yourself when you're embedded in a foreign language, to us, country. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF R7 is your gateway. Discover how the YZF R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. This is the 2023 MV Agusta Dragster RRSCS America. And really the, the important factor here is the America part of that name because it is part of the the sort of long history of MV Agusta doing America editions. And that really dates back to 1973 with the 750SS that was launched and decorated with, you know, the red, white, and blue color scheme to celebrate the Italian brands, uh, we'll say one of their more important markets. You know, the United States does consume quite a bit of uh, Italian motorcycles and MV Agusta has, has always appreciated that fact as well. So there's definitely a connection in that sense, just from a business perspective, but also there's some cultural connections as well between the United States and Italian uh, products and things like that. So yeah, that's what this bike is celebrating. At its core, it really is just a Dragster RR SCS. So the RR is the upspec version of the Dragster, and then the SCS 
is the uh, essentially it's a recluse clutch. So it's uh, MVGoose's proprietary version of that sort of system. Um, but yeah, that's what we're going to be getting into. Okay. So obviously it has the 800 three-cylinder, much celebrated engine that puts out really some very respectable horsepower for an 800. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's that, that same engine that we've, we've come to know over the past few years. It has been updated a handful of times, you know, not from the ground up revisions, but along the way it's gotten some, you know, mapping updates, things like that. And of course, with the Dragster, it also has a, a model-specific uh, map that really leans into the this, the torque aspect of that that triple triple cylinder engine, um, and also the dragster comes with a much wider rear tire, and that sort of leans into that aesthetic of you know just straight line go fast sort of attitude. So it really prioritizes that that low end torque and mid range punch, um, and of course you still have as a triple cylinder engine it still has quite a bit of top end power. For me, if you're looking at an MV Agusta Dragster 800, um, that's, that's really the, the sort of the centerpiece of, of the engine. Um, it's always been a really impressive engine in the sense that I would say, if you look at the, the broader spectrum of the entire triple cylinder uh, category at the moment, which includes your MT09s, uh, Triumph, street triple 765s things of that nature the the mv agusta's 79 or yeah 798 triple cylinder engine is still extremely raw rough and rowdy i mean it cranks out 140 horsepower and 64 foot pounds of torque those are claimed numbers of court of course it also uses technology that we really don't see outside of moto gp typically uh, uses a counter-rotating crankshaft, which, as you guys know, helps with handling abilities and, you know, reduces, um, or instead of reduces, it counteracts the gyroscopic forces that wheels inherently play when they're spinning down the road. Um, so it really just sort of lightens up the steering of any motorcycle. And, and really, there's only a handful of manufacturers that that use that technology in production motorcycles, Ducati being one of them with their um, V4 power plants. So that's the, the Panigale, the Street Fighter, and the Multistrada variants. Of course, you know, getting back to the point of the, the MV Goose's triple cylinder engine, what I do enjoy about it is the fact that it, it is the rawest of the bunch. It is the most aggressive, the most exciting, we'll say. You know, it's not the most refined, and, you know, that's, that's an observation that kind of cuts both ways. The low end and sort of the low RPM behavior of the MV Gusta is indicative of a bike from that generation. This, this engine goes back, you know, you know a, a good number of years at this point. So it does kind of have that rougher off the line feel. But as you get into the actual stride of the RPM range, that it really cleans up. You get really good power delivery and things of that nature. So from that perspective, it is good. And, you know, they've also updated the fueling and throttle maps over the years. So when I've written previous versions of it, you know, the fueling was not the best. And now things are becoming much better and much more on par with, say, your Yamaha or, or Triumph uh, competitors 
in that sense, you know, the, the Triumph and the Yamaha are going to be far more refined, just far more smooth in their delivery and things of that nature. But what they lack is that sort of absolute aggression that's really seen here. Because at the end of the day, this, this motor, the 798cc triple cylinder engine, is pretty much the same thing that's shoved into the F3 Supersport bikes. So it really has that raw, you know, racetrack-oriented, long-gearing sort of mentality in it. And that really kind of is the takeaway for any dragster uh, or, you know, triple-cylinder MV Augusta, in my opinion. I think that's sort of the, the centerpiece. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I haven't ridden a dragster, funny enough, but I have ridden uh, brutales and, and and so on and the, yes they definitely have that characteristic you know they're definitely you know sort of uh punchy and, and and have got that that um sort of slightly hair trigger feel to them yeah and to be clear the the brutale is the we'll say the the founding father of the dragster because the dragster is a derivative of the brutale so yeah they're yes, absolutely very closely related absolutely so the dragster incorporates um, some decent electronics, I believe, uh, different power modes and traction control and so on. Yeah, that's that's a more recent change. Um, the Brutale and, of course, the dragster uh, received an Enovia IMU. Enovia is a is, is an Italian company, um, and that's something that MV Gusa really prides itself on is having a high percentage of domestically engineered and produced. Uh, components on their motorcycles but you know uh aside from the you know lean act uh lean angle sensitive traction control you know multiple cornering abs maps things of that nature you also have the scs clutch which we've touched on before uh, it essentially acts like a recluse clutch and to really just kind of put a pin in it the scs clutch allows you to ride a you know near 800 cc motorcycle as if it were a scooter you grab the super heavy uh, clutch lever on the right-hand side, kick the bike down into first gear. And then after that, because it does have an up-down quick shifter, you can treat the thing like a gigantic scooter. So kind of leaning into that, that dragster personality, which is one of the many reasons why the SCS clutch is employed in this application, you can sit at a stoplight, never touch the clutch, just whack the throttle wide open as long as you have wheelie control on. And the thing will just accelerate in a straight line. So, so it actually has a clutch lever. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you still have to shift into first gear and then into neutral. But, okay. you know, the thing is with the SCS clutch, it allows you to, like I mentioned before, ride it like a scooter. So when you're coming to a stop, you actually don't have to feather the clutch. It disengages automatically. And okay. as you accelerate, it engages and propels you forward. Now, it does it in a very seamless way. And what's interesting is not so much the taking off action. That makes sense to me mentally, where it's like, oh, okay, you know, I I twist the throttle, the clutch plates grab, you know, the, all the electronic systems that are controlling the SCS clutch allow it to propel itself forward. What's really curious to me is how they've managed to do that on deceleration so you still get engine braking say if you want to come into a corner and just use the engine to slow down it's not like a recluse where it disengages fairly quickly uh, if anyone's ever used that on a dirt bike they they start to freewheel pretty quickly and so that's 
kind of a, an advantage and a disadvantage. You, when you're going downhill, it's kind of kind of tough because you have to you have to tune them and it's it's a whole thing. Anyway, um, interestingly enough, on the MV Augusta, just about where I would start to pull in the clutch for low speed maneuvering, that's when the SCS clutch disengages. So in a lot of ways, it's doing it when a rider would naturally reach for the clutch anyway, which sort of negates the entire uh, need to do that. So that's nice. It does take a little getting used to. Mentally, I still reach for the clutch lever and I'm like, oh, okay, well, it's already disengaged. I guess I don't need to like feather the clutch around. The yeah. only time I, I was actually using the clutch is when we were making some tight U-turns during a photo pass. And I kept feathering the clutch as if I needed to slip the clutch, you know, for low speed and maneuvering. And then I realized I didn't need to do that. Um, you know, there's a, another, another little feature of the SCS clutch too, where if you were to go to the racetrack, uh, you know, which a Brutale or an F3 would, would do quite happily. And frankly, a dragster would as well. I just don't see dragster buyers ever doing it. You can actually disengage the SES clutch function. Uh, there's a bolt on the side of the engine case where you just unclick that and it disengage, disengages that functionality and just renders it into a normal clutch. So there's that. But it is fairly heavy, you said, that when you're actually operating the lever. Yes. Yeah, it's it's a pretty heavy, heavy clutch on the left-hand side. The, the, the takeaway is you almost never use it unless you're coming to a complete stop in the sense that you're mm. going to turn the bike off. Um, right. And then one, one other thing we should probably note is that it has a scooter brake, which is kind of hilarious for a 800cc more or less motorcycle. But again, because it's never truly in gear, you know, it needs a scooter brake because even when you leave it in gear, um, you know, the clutch isn't engaged. So it, you can't just park on a hill and then expect the gearbox to hold itself in place. Right. It'll just roll forward. <laughs> so, so yes, it's got a parking brake, quite neat. Um, in terms of gearbox, it has the, you know, the uh, quick upshift and the blip downshifter. So again, you really don't need to use the clutch anyway. No, no, it's, it's, it's a system that when you, when you factor in the, you know, the up down quick shifter and things like that, it becomes a pretty cohesive package in terms of handling what did you what do you think of the the dragster again it's a fairly <clears throat> established evolved model it does not have you know electronic um suspension but it has a i believe it has a mazoki fork and um and shock probably yeah it's the same stuff that we've seen on the brutales and the dragsters for many many years and it, there's there's some takeaways here that are positive and negative you know you you look at it and you go, okay, same steel trellis frame that's been on the Brutale and Dragster for a long time, derived from the F3. Uh, you know, it's not the same thing because they have separate geometry, but it's inspired by each other. And it goes back a long way. So it's a tried and true thing. The Marzocchi fork and sack shock are definitely sprung and damped on the stiffer side. They're really indicative of that super sport heritage. And the riding experience is definitely in that realm as well. It's a it's a well-sorted motorcycle. Um, you know, it's weight. You can feel a bit through the handlebars and the handlebars on the dragster itself are 
they're not riser bars. They're sort of in between a riser and a clip-on. So they, they add a little bit more weight to the front end. So when you're riding aggressively, you can you get a better sense of what the front end is doing. You get more feedback. The sort of negative side of that is that it's a bit more risky. I would say it's it's more relative to riding a, a super sport than a naked bike in that sense. Um, not quite as far as a true super sport, but it's definitely in that realm. So it can get a bit risky. Um, you know, we rode in Malibu, which is the, the road layouts are really fun. Those roads are, are great. Uh, the asphalt, let's just be blunt about it, kind of sucks. Um, and it's challenging for any bike to get through there. But even, you know, from that perspective, the suspension that we have here, you know, it's, it's good, but it should be a lot better. We should be seeing semi-active Olin stuff or some sort of Marzocchi or, you know, show equivalent for this price range. Really, that's, that's just the bottom line. You know, this bike as a limited edition, and that's kind of what you're buying into with this bike because it's the America limited edition. It's just cresting shy of, uh, of $30,000. So realistically, I want better suspension. Is this stuff bad? No. I mean... Um, you know, the fork even has DLC coating on it. So it's black and looks cool. But the, the reality is, you know, this thing is sprung and damped fairly stiff, quite indicative of a, an Italian sporty machine. And on those roads, it can kind of take the toll. You know, that said, when you get a, a relatively smooth patch of pavement, you can rip around corners and it's, <laughs> it handles like an Italian sport bike. It, it is very fun to ride in that sense. The reality is just as a customer, I want something more out of that suspension in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the actual hardware that's on the bike. Um, is this suspension bad? No, I'm just saying at near 30 G's, we should be seeing the best of the best, even if we never use it, because at the end of the day, MV Augusta really does lean into the whole motorcycle art thing. And that's cool, but I want shiny blingy stuff to look at in my, in the living room of my mansion, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And they have electronic suspension on there, Turismo, Veloce, and so on. Yeah, the 1000s get it, the sport touring bike. The Brutale RR has the Olin ZC suspension. So they're clearly going in that direction. I think it's time that the uh, the dragster was offered with it as well. I agree with you. Yeah. Okay, so um, so overall, um, you think it's it's uh, certainly the the this model seems to be about more about the paint job than anything else but as an as an evolved motorcycle it sounds pretty good obviously the basis for this is a brutale which then evolves into the dragster so you you do have all of the exotica like the single-sided swing arm and uh, the fuel tank stylings which really dates back quite a number of years now um and it's interesting because if you look at the the slow evolution of both the Brutale and the Dragster lineup, and the F3 for that matter, they they kind of came out what I would in in my opinion a little bit ahead of their time. You know, if you look at the Japanese styling, it's very insectoid to kind of use a buzzword, right? Very futuristic, and the Brutales and the Dragsters kind of adopted that pretty early on. Weirdly enough, I think that style. And that original style and that just that original thread that dates back a good number of years at this point has matured or has been able to mature 
I would say much more successfully than some of the Japanese models. I mean, think about, let's just throw out some, some, some real classic examples of things that, that did not age well. Remember the, the Kawasaki Z1000? Uh, what was oh. that styling thing that Kawasaki used to lean into? Sugomi? I remember that well. I'd forgotten the, the naming uh, convention they used. Yeah. Uh, when I see those bikes now, I'm like, oh, oh God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is weird. I really liked it at the time. It looks a little dated now, a little odd, but... Yeah, and what's weird is when I saw them back then, I still went, oh, oh, God. Um, so I, as a motorcycle, I thought they were actually pretty solid. Stylistically, uh, you know, they, they needed to figure out the way. And now the Japanese manufacturers have really kind of done that. But yeah, the America branding goes a little bit deeper than just the livery. Okay. You... You get obviously the red, white, and blue, uh, you know, shimmering paint that's on the the fuel tank. That stuff looks excellent. Uh, the build quality is really nice in that sense. There's also a carbon fiber wheel cover in the rear. Um, as I mentioned before, there's a model specific tuning, and uh, you know the the rear brake assembly has been updated as well. Um, and also, it uses a Brembo M4.32 calipers. Uh, that's updated for the the dragster and that's another point where you know although this is an updated caliper the m4.32 caliper goes back quite a long way and to be fair it's it's a solid caliper it works nicely um you know the brake feel on this bike is a little interesting in that it's kind of a soft bite and then the return isn't as strong as i'd like um and so the the braking is is good but the feel is a little bit off. And again, like the suspension, I understand that people that are buying a Dragster America are probably just going to, you know, really lean into the fact that this thing looks cool and it's a limited edition thing and just kind of preserve it, right? But the fact is, this thing should have M50s. It should have Stylemas. M50s at the least, Stylemas for sure. Um, and that, you know, so in that sense, if you look at this motorcycle from a purely performance mindset, there's a lot of holes you can pick in the, the level of the componentry that's on there. But what the MV Augusta brings to the table, and specifically the limited edition America, it, it brings that exclusivity. And that's tough to quantify from a reviewing perspective, because we can't measure that. We can't measure whether or not you want exclusivity or how important that is to you. All we can you know, measure is how the thing functions out in the real world. And you know, the engine and the chassis, I think, are the, the highlights there, which has always been for the, the Bertale and the Dragster for me in that sense. So I think in that sense, still very MV Augusta. Um, for everyone else, they're really gonna lean into that America heritage, which you know, there's been a number of America bikes over the years, limited edition. And most of the bikes are allocated to the North American market, but there's only 300 individually numbered units and it's engraved on the motorcycle, comes with a certificate of authenticity and all that good stuff. And that's exclusively available in the North American market. Uh, when I say North America, I also include Canada and Mexico. Um, so a handful are going to Canada, a handful are going to uh, Mexican dealerships too. But that's kind of the bike in a nutshell. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you're buying this because you you want that crazy looking MV Agusta motorcycle in your living room. And that's cool, man. Um, 
you know, the hardcore sport bike guys will see some of the parts and be like, you know, this could be better. This could be better. This could be better. But it still has that, you know, rough, raw and rowdy charm in the engine, which I truly appreciate. And then, you know, the, the, the chassis is competent as well. So yeah, overall the thing works. It's not just a museum piece, but uh, I think that's what people are really getting at with this thing. I agree. Okay. All right. Hey, thanks a lot. Really appreciate your time and, uh, and, and your insight. Yeah. Um, very interesting. Okay, cool. John Ulrich and his son, Chris, started the Road Racing World Action Fund nonprofit in 2001. The goal was to buy air fence rider protection for use around American racetracks. <laughs> they have been spectacularly successful. One of their main ways to raise money is by having ex-superbike pro racer Chris take guests on fun two-up superbike rides around the track at each round of the Moto America series in exchange for a donation. Actually, he's raised over $60,000 so far. TJ Adams got to experience this thrill ride of a lifetime at Brainerd Raceway, and she gives us her impressions of what it's like to cling on for dear life at 160 miles per hour. Spoiler alert, she absolutely loved it. You can check out her onboard video on our YouTube channel. Okay, so I wanted to talk to you about the Road Racing World Action Fund today. Um, essentially, the Ulrich family has been involved in road racing, certainly for as long as I can remember. Uh, so started by, you know, Father John and his son, Chris Ulrich, who was himself a professional AMA in those days, uh, Moto America road racer. Um, they have really uh, spearheaded the Road Racing World Action Fund, which essentially uh, buys air fences, um, which are like sort of giant inflatable airbags that, that line the dangerous parts of racetracks. The nonprofit started actually back in 2001, and clearly John and, and Chris were, were concerned enough about riders getting hurt, riders possibly even getting killed, that they decided that, that somebody had to do something. There was enough apathy in the industry and certainly among the racing community that they felt they had to do something. So Road Racing World, the Ulrich's uh, magazine, posted an editorial or wrote an editorial in those days on April the 17th, 2001, and basically started soliciting donations. And these air fences are not cheap. So they uh, started to solicit donations and the response was absolutely astonishing. And to cut a long story short, they have raised hundreds of thousands of dollars over, over the last couple of decades and they continue to do so. Um, if anyone wants to donate to the Road Racing World Action Fund, you can go to roadracingworld.com, go to the, the fund and click the Donate Now button. And all of your donations will go to, to help safety around racetracks in America. So one of the, their ways of, interesting ways that they started to, to raise money was Chris, who himself is a heck of a rider, and like I say, was a, a professional AMA guy for many years. Um, they decided to, to do two up rides, which is Chris doing a couple of laps around a racetrack at a Moto America round, 
with a paying passenger on the back and the fee goes towards the fund. <laughs> He's been doing it for 20 years now and it's really taken off and really is just unbelievable. So you got to do this last week when we were in Brainerd, Minnesota at the Moto America round. And I want you to tell me what it was like doing this two-up ride with Chris Ulrich on the back of his two-up bike. Yeah, as you say, recently we were at Moto America in Brainerd, Minnesota. Uh, the two-up ride is on the Suzuki GSXR 1000R and it is adapted slightly to help the passengers so the foot pegs for the passenger have been lowered slightly and there's a grab handle on the tank and we were instructed to <laughs> once we were given the grip on that not to let go especially to wave at any cameras that friends and relatives might be waving around um, there were six of us in all going around this time five of us were females girls and there was one guy who'd never actually been on a bike before he'd never ridden so that was very adventurous. I think he he, he over-adventured my, my situation. How about gear? Did you have to provide your own gear or were they able to, to give you any gear? They were able to give me all the gear. They have a selection there for ladies and men, top leathers. I, I had Alpine Star all-in-one race suit, uh, Arai helmet and uh, Alpine Star's gloves and boots. So um, everything's there for you. You just need to you know, you could be a passerby wearing your shorts and t-shirt and you can donate and uh, go in and, and have one of these fantastic rides. I say fantastic because it really was at the end of the day. I had loved it at the beginning of uh, the day. <laughs> <laughs> Were you nervous? Once, once I'd signed up, I was very anxious because I ride myself and I'm not great at just going on the back of motorcycles um, of people I don't know. And Chris Ulrich is very well known, but I don't know him. <laughs> I didn't know if he was going to show off a bit. I had no idea of his sort of on-track pers persona. <laughs> so um, I mounted the back of this formidable superbike <laughs> with Chris captaining. And, uh, it's you know, loud he's, as heck, isn't it? Oh, yeah, once he started it up, it sure is. <laughs> so they set up the cameras. They had some um, GoPros on the front, and they send you copies of that afterwards. That's really exciting to watch. Um, so we sort of wove our way out of the pit lane and everybody was uh, encouraging us and applauding. It was very exciting. I felt like a superstar. Um, and then once he laid down into the first bend, although I'm sure he wasn't doing his utmost and top speed, for me it seemed like um, the bike was sort of devouring the pavement. It just all flashed away underneath. Um, I made sure I was looking ahead because I wanted to see where we were going. Um, we'd been watching the racing round Brainerd for the day and so I was really interested and uh, pleased to actually learn the whole route of the track from on board. So you were able to see, I mean it wasn't, you weren't just sort of clinging on for dear life and you couldn't see past him, you were actually able to see the track ahead. Yes, yeah, I could see quite easily. The, the pillion seat is slightly raised a little bit of a perch position but not uncomfortable at all and you have a really good strong grip because these bars are fitted onto the tank so your arms are just round Chrissy's sylph-like waist <laughs> <laughs> okay. and you have a little bit of room to move I mean he moves a bit on the bike and it doesn't interfere with where I was sitting at all um, but it gives you a bit of a clue of what's coming up because if you haven't been on a racetrack before it's quite difficult I think to see the forecoming turns so, you know, you're prepared for, for what's coming up by reading his body language, as it were. 
um, but it, it was uh, exhilarating. It really made my adrenaline pumped. <laughs> um, I sort of instinctively cocked my head to look up where we were going and then uh, my, uh, in order to keep with him on the bike and go with it, I sort of put a bit of pressure on the inside foot peg, which really helped me lean into the turn. Of the, th the three parts of riding a motorcycle, essentially accelerating, leaning and braking, did any one of them really stand out to you as the most shocking or was none of it shocking? I mean, most... how, did, how did it feel? You've never really ridden that fast before. How, how did it feel? No, there's a good question. I think the fastest we, that I saw on the clock was about 100, was um, 155. Um, that wasn't going through a turn. <laughs> but the turns for me were informative and the most um, surprising because of the grip. You know, you really... For me, it felt very low to the ground when I was leaning with Chris on <laughs> in the turn and it just felt completely secure. There was no movement at all. I mean, this isn't a top speed for him, I'm sure, but for me, it was really fast. And well, he's, he's actually lapping at superbike lap speed. In other words, the speed that he lapped with you on would have qualified you guys on the grid at Moto America at the superbike race. Well, hey. So you would have qualified on the grid. You wouldn't have been in pole position, but you'd have been on the grid. That's how fast he's going. That was a very credible lap that he did. Makes, <laughs> makes yeah? me feel I've achieved even more. <laughs> right. He's, he's also riding on uh, Dunlop slick tires. Yes. So these are full on race tires. This is a fully race kitted motorcycle. So you've got the best of everything on there. And so obviously that helps give you confidence. So how many laps did you do? Well, there are two laps. You do two laps. The first one is sort of a sighting lap. I think he's sort of getting used to me and seeing if I'm going to jump off at... <laughs> <laughs> at the wrong moment. <laughs> at any moment. <laughs> right. Or sort of lean the wrong way or do something untoward. Um, and just to gauge what my comfort is, what the pillion's comfort level is. And also to get me used to the, being on the bike and the, and the position and, and the whole feel of it. I mean, it's really exhilarating. Going down the straight, you do feel such power. The acceleration of, of the machine is just indescribable, much more than you can ever see from being a, 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 a bystander watching from you know, the sidelines at a track or on television. It's, you're so far removed from that feeling. Does it, I mean, ob the obvious comparison is with a roller coaster. I mean, you've ridden roller coasters. Does this, is there any comparison or is this just, a completely different experience. It is a comparison, but a roller coaster, you're not anything to do with what's happening. You have no control at all and no say in it. And so with a roller coaster, in fact, I don't choose to go on roller coasters because it's one of those close your eyes situation and get through it. Right. Whereas, this for me. yeah, going around the track on the back with Chris Ulrich on this super bike, um, I was already really excited. A bit of anxiety threw into that. Um, and you, you, you've got a human being there sitting controlling this machine in front of you, you have a say in it. I mean, you can just give a little squeeze. They explained if you're uncomfortable, you want to get off, you can indicate with your arms. So there is a safety word oh, if you yes. need to. There's a way of getting out of it if you need to. Yes, or if you want to slow down a bit and he, he assures you that he'll pull off straight away. I mean, he's experienced in this. He's been doing this for years. He's actually been doing it for decades. He's been doing it about 20 years. He told me that he can tell within the first couple of corners how comfortable the passenger is. So he said by the time he leaves the pit lane, he, he knows whether this is gonna be a comfortable ride for them or not. 
And they really emphasised fun at the beginning beginning of it, didn't they? Yes, yes. David Swartz was so nice the way he really said, this needs to be fun. Yes, and they did spend time with us gathered around the bike, having a good look at it, and we could touch it and sit on it and everything. And he explained how things worked and where the grips were and, you know, to look over and look at the speedometer if you wanted to. So you really got comfortable and... Uh, with the safety had, of it. Uh, yeah, and, and had a good knowledge, even for the guy who'd never been on a bike before. You know, it was very informative. And they take photos of you and you get a video sent to you afterwards. So it's a, it's a fabulous experience. And it went in a blur. I mean, the scenery around the Brainerd International Raceway whizzed by in a blur of vibrant <laughs> colour. <laughs> but most of the time I was looking at the track, you just see that in your periphery vision. Um, so the time went in a blink of an eye. Uh, I did want another lap once we got in. I wanted another lap. <laughs> and as I dismounted, I was... Uh, probably using language I shouldn't have used because I was trying to describe what a fantastic time I'd had. And uh, as I took off the arrow helmet, nobody could really resist my infectious smile. Everyone was grinning back at me. It was really an unforgettable experience. That's absolutely terrific. So you, you got the videos from David Swartz, the editor of roadracingworld.com. Yes, he sent that into my Dropbox and you get two views facing back at you. So going round uh, from the right side and then going from the left side. Oh, and also the track ahead. So, yeah, they had a lot of cameras going on there. <laughs> yeah, so that's great. Well, terrific. So overall, bearing in mind this is for a, for a good cause, would you say this was worth making a decent donation to the Road Racing World Action Fund? Paul? Absolutely. Also, it's an opportunity that you don't just get anywhere. You can't ask a friend to take you around the track. You don't get permission to do that sort of thing. So it's unique in that you're allowed to do it. And yes, it sure is worth saving up, asking for it as a birthday gift. So when you next go to a track and you see that Road Racing World Fund are there, just go and have a go because pushing the boundaries and embracing the unknown is going to give you the best memories. And you know, life's greatest adventures lie on the other side of fear. I learned that because the fear came first. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Ulrich family are very woven into the Moto America uh, racing paddock. Um, they run the um, M4 XR uh, Suzuki racing team and in 2023 there's a couple more rounds of Moto America left so anyone listening to this podcast if you find yourself at one of those rounds and you decide that you too want to uh, make a donation to Road Racing World Action Fund um, improve safety of tracks for all the racers out there and also have the, have the couple of laps that you will never experience anywhere else then uh, get yourself over to M4 X-Star Suzuki in the paddock and uh, ask for Chris or John Ulrich. Yes. Or David Swartz. Count yourself in. Yeah, they're great guys. Great guys, it's well worth doing. In our second feature segment, Cat McLeod of Leod Escapes comes back to chat with TJ about travelling in Europe, including some handy gear and packing tips. The always lively and very entertaining cat gives us the do's and don'ts of how to travel and hopefully avoid making a complete fool of yourself when you're embedded in a foreign language, to us, country. We had a lot of listeners and a lot of feedback, people asking more questions. So thanks for coming back to us. So Layord Tours, just to refresh people's memories or to talk to people who didn't hear your previous podcast with us 
you take people on tours to a variety of countries and you take them on track. Yes, it's uh, specifically, I have two types of tours now. One is a tour specifically for track riders. We take them to MotoGP circuits to ride where their heroes get to ride. And I've recently started going to the complete opposite end, uh, training tours for people who want to travel abroad on their own, but they don't quite know how. So that's a, a separate bit. We did it last year and it actually kind of worked out. So yeah, I want people to not be afraid of traveling abroad, but they're not really the market for the big expensive uh, full featured tours. So this is a training tour. It's just me as your instructor, not your God. Uh, I send people out in groups of four with GPSs on their bike. And I say, okay, you guys got to figure it out. The routes are made, your hotels are booked but I try to teach people about routing and I teach people about food and I teach people about culture. You know, all the things, this is not a riding instruction. This is a traveling instruction. How do you get by in Europe riding a motorcycle on your own? You can do this. That's a really good idea, yes, because a lot of people are put off by that. They, they have this dream of riding in, in different countries and then comes the, the mental block. Yeah, it's honestly the... And yeah, the, the the tours that are out there, most of them are pretty good, but they're sort of a full featured hand holding, we've done it all for you type of thing. And that means it's expensive. And some people would never, even if they had that type of money, they'd be like, no, I don't want to ride in a group. I just want to do my own thing. But they're sort of intimidated by travel. So yeah, that's a new, we've got two of those this year. We've got a Dolomites training tour, and then we're doing a new one, the Castles and Curves training tour, a little bit about how to see the sights in Europe. Whereas the Dolomites is just, it's its going to the amusement park that is the Dolomites and, and riding. Yeah, I hear the roads there are fabulous. It's it, its a motorcycle playground. It is. It's wonderful. Haven't been myself, but... uh. Oh, well, let's see what we can do uh, next. <laughs> we'll have to write that wrong. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, let's get into it. I tried to sort of go through my bag. What's in my bag? What are the things that I bring with me on tour? Because I'm, I'm out there working. So let's just get right into it and get your listeners some actual content, stuff that's helpful. So first off is street gear. All right. Well, let's try to give you folks some credibility here. I am not sponsored by any gear manufacturer. I have sold hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gear when I was working at bikebandit.com as their marketing director. Um, I'm a tour operator. So that means I've seen a lot of gear and I've seen a fair amount of gear hit the ground. <laughs> um, not as much as you might think. Um, the US gear market has its challenges of geography and kind of a lack of standards. Uh, some people get pissed when I wax rhapsodic about how awesome it is to go into a Louis Motorrad in Europe or go into a polo store and you can try on 15 different jackets and three different colors and it's everything's stocked. Well, it, it, it sounds great. Yes, you're buying into that culture. Yeah, but really the advantage that Europe's got there is it's all about geography. Because the amount of people within a particular market area makes it possible for a shop to stock that much gear. It's not just the death of the middle class or something. It really is a geography thing. It's hard for the United States to, to do that. There's a few shops still around the United States where you can go in and try a whole bunch of stuff on. But 
right. They're fewer and far between and they're harder. You know, it's, it's hard to do. It's really hard to survive having that much inventory uh, in the United States. The other thing is gear standards, right? Helmet standards, while confusing at least, exist. ECE, FIM certified, the sort of weird Snell from the auto racing world, um, Department of Transportation for the United States, which is a bare minimum. Uh, but gear, gear doesn't really have any, isn't really held to any particular standards in the United States, although there are standardized tests for it. There are standards of quality regarding tear and abrasion strength. They're literally how much force can something take before it tears apart and how much abrasion. There's literally a set amount of grit and then they do a certain number of cycles and push the fabric until it fails. And again, in, in Europe, they have a standard that like you can't sell gear that's bad. Um, you can see bad gear for sale in the United States. And if this sounds like I'm picking on the United States, then go to Thailand. The, the gear in Thailand is just hilarious. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's zero. No, it sounds as though in the United States you have the option, you have the choice yourself as to how long you want your clothing, let's say, to last if you do happen to be sliding down the road. Yeah, some of it can be deceptive, but yeah, on the whole, you can, you know, if you purchase a decent brand, you, unfortunately, the only way you can really tell in the United States is the price tag, really. And even then, it's it's kind of hard to, to kind of hard to guess because the standards aren't there. Uh, but you know, like Thailand, it's like a Halloween outfit sort of version of motorcycle gear made of like flimsy plastic. And for some reason, obscene amounts of glitter and neon colors. I don't know why, but that's that's the Thai people. <laughs> okay, uh, enough futzing around. What's in my bag? I wear custom Kevlar gear from Motorport. Now, there's a reason you won't see this gear in dealerships or online retailers. I never could have sold it uh, while I was working for Bike Bandit. It's simply because the quality of the fabric is too expensive to give any retailers a decent markup margin. They just won't touch it. And Aerostitch, yeah, Aerostitch is uh, kind of in the same game. Andy Goldfine uh, works with a really uh, heavy-duty denier piece of nylon that's backed with plastic. And it's really tough. But yeah, Andy Goldfine of, of Aerostitch is in the same situation. His gear is too high quality for his brand. So he can only sell direct. Uh, and the same goes with uh, Motorport and the, the Kevlar gear. They actually sell most of their Kevlar gear now goes to police departments. Other thing that's sort of been discovered with, with the lower quality of gear is it just won't hold up to thousands of miles of gear and uh, abuse and whatnot. Yeah, so those are people who's, for whom motorcycling is their job, but for you and I who are riding for pleasure. Well, let's face it, if, if I suddenly got sponsored by Climb or Denise, I would happily wear uh, one of those nice brands. Their, their jackets, while not quite as durable, have some really neat features and some good stuff. These jackets are aren't bad they're good they've got good armor in them they, they hold up all right in a crash they're just not great for the thousands of miles i do but but if i got a, a fresh jacket every every two or three years then then yeah I, i'd be fine to be sponsored you know i like you know denise stuff climb makes some good stuff you know at, at alpine star you know these are good manufacturers but the standard the including the kevlar either whether it's mixed with lycra uh, where it's sort of stretchy, or it's called Caprotech, or the uh, the Kevlar mesh, which is kind of like wearing an armored screen door. 
Uh, it's the same stuff that uh, the stab vests are made out of in uh, in the UK. You see a policeman wearing the wearing the stab vest, but the knives won't go through. It's the, it's the same stuff. It's the Kevlar the Kevlar mesh. Motorport does a lot of good business now for police and highway patrol because the stuff lasts so long. Uh, it's machine washable. It has good armor, uh, particularly in the thighs, which, if you think about it, is a place that a lot of motorcycle gear doesn't offer padding in, and yet you're almost guaranteed to hit it when you go down. I tend to go for the Kevlar mesh because I ride in a lot of hot weather, and it's very easy for me to throw a rain suit over it or put some thermal layers under it. Let's move on to boots. I was sponsored by TCX Boots for a while. They, uh, I really like them, but I've purchased uh, equivalently good. When I'm over in Germany, I pick up Daytona boots. They're really high quality, and you can actually send your Daytona boots back to the factory, and they will refurbish and resole them. That's good. That's a good deal, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you pay a little bit more for them. They're like everything that Germany seems to make. They're a bit heavy. And can you buy those online? Every now and then, somebody will import them in from the United States, but generally, the Daytonas are really only available in Germany. Right. And we do have German listeners, but most of our listeners are in the state. Germany, you lucky bastards. You have access to the best motorcycle gear that you can try on. It's it's not fair. It really isn't fair. Uh, but I've purchased other stuff. Uh, I buy uh, Benucci when I'm over in Europe. That's a brand that you rarely see here. It's not a great you know, not super fancy, but it's it's a decent boot. You know, I this one I'm actually going to put in as a link because I love these boots. The Jupiter 4 Gore-Tex Half Boots from TCX. I got my first pair of them for free, and I absolutely love them, and I wore through them, and I went back and I bought a, I bought a pair full retail price. Right, and these are good for what sort of weather? These are actually not specific riding boots. I use them as, like, transport boots they're like half boots they've got a little bit of armor in the toe they're super comfortable they still say i'm a motorcycle rider but i'm i can also walk around town in them they're my going around town and and transporting a bike here and there from a rental shop boot and and if they still look sort of stylish enough that i can kind of get away and go into a nice dinner with them they look sort of cool and functional and sort of it's this black suede look so I'm putting that in as a link because that's a type of boot that is different. It's good. It's comfortable. And I've gotten a lot of good wear out of it. That that one's in the link. And also in the link, of course, is the, is the link to Motorport. Motorport also makes gloves out of Kevlar Caprotec, which is, again, Lycra mixed with Kevlar. I've had a pair of those gloves. Jeez, they last forever. But I don't use them for the track. I do use them for the street. For the track, I use racer racer gloves because they have a really good fit and really precise feel in the fingers, which I want on my breaking finger. So racer gloves is what I use there. But for sport touring, I'd buy another pair, but I don't need to because I've had them now. For, I've got a pair that's 10 years old that have seen thousands of miles and they still look brand new. That's some recommendation. So you're talking here about the boots, particularly when you are touring, you're on your motorcycle. So you turn up at your hotel and then you want to go out for dinner. You don't want to put your kind of road boots on again. You can put those casual, more casual. Yeah, Jupiter 4 Gore-Tux, this means it can be raining. I can be stepping through puddles. It's sort of a half boot. If I have to transport a bike, you know, I don't have, you know, they're not flimsy like a pair of tennis shoes. It's just sort of a nice half and half. Uh, and they've been really handy. All right, let, let's, let's move on from uh, from gear. Uh, I know that people are very picky about their gear, particularly how it looks. 
Okay, the Rolo bag. When you're packing clothes, if uh, experienced travelers know you don't fold, you roll to save space. Uh, and while that being the case, what could be better than a bag that actually rolls up? I will live out of this Rolo bag for months at a time. Four underlayers, a couple button-down shirts, but the Rolo bag, it literally, it unrolls and then I hang it wherever I go. Unfortunately, this particular company did not survive COVID, but I did find a sort of Amazon copy of it that's sort of the same idea. It's six inches wider than the, than the original bag, but it'll still do the trick. And also I've, I've been able to wedge one of these Rolo bags easily into a, into a pannier. Uh, and so keep my clothes. So again, it's all about packing stuff down tight. And you know, I think for for episode two of this, I'll, I'll talk more about stuff that doesn't wrinkle. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, here's here's some stuff that doesn't. You know, ex officio give and go underwear. I will live for four months at a time with only four pairs of underwear without ironing them at all. No, nope. <laughs> don't iron. Them. <laughs> when does anybody iron their knickers? Really? Uh, uh, but no, it's all about buying. Ex officio makes uh, clothes that are meant to dry quickly. It's meant. It's specifically meant for for travelers. It's it's the the duty of hotel sink laundry. If you want to travel light and right, you gotta you you gotta pay the price. And the price is you gotta do hotel sink laundry. And these are for guys and girls. Yep, yep. No, they, they, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them particularly sexy, but they are functional. There's a couple of, you know, pretty thin, next to nothing thongs that they have, but I, I wouldn't say it's a romantic, but it's definitely functional and it, it will work. It'll, it'll get you through. And you know, that's the advantage, really. I think of women's underwear. There's less to dry. Yes. But they always give us men these big, giant, huge things. All right. Uh, another thing that's really handy, collapsible duffel bags. I use these for everything. Okay, I throw a collapsible duffel bag into my panniers, into my top case. It's a laundry bag. It's a shopping bag. I've got to go get stuff at the store. Well, you don't get free bags in, in most countries. Uh, so boom, it's a shopping bag. And then also it's an overflow bag in case your luggage is overweight and you're stuck at the airport, and now you've got to pull stuff out of your main luggage and buy a bag, uh-uh. <laughs> they, will, they will really get you. You will spend huge amounts of money when all you needed was just, sure, okay, you're going to have to pay for more luggage fees or something, or maybe you have another carry-on or something. That's, that's just really handy. You just carry this lightweight, collapsible duffel bag it has multiple uses. I usually carry two or three with me. Mm, good idea. If you need to go to the beach or something. Yep. Whatever. It's just having that separate bag. In some cases, it can help you stay organized inside your big giant suitcase. Uh, whatever. There's multiple uses for it. All right. This is going to happen uh, always on every tour abroad. I take with me four phone charging cables. Because you are unplugging and plugging in at different places you're moving your cords a lot more. Your cords are getting more wear. I go through at least two cords a year that will just fail. And I buy some pretty nice expensive cords. They still fail. And then I have clients who are like, hey, cat, I forgot my cord. Can you can get borrow one? And you know, a, a cell phone, when I'm traveling abroad, a cell phone is vital. 
it's my map. It's my, it's my compass. It's my way I get hold of clients. It's like, oh, damn it. That guy's about to arrive on his plane. I don't even remember what he looks like. Quick, 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 go through, right? going through my phone and pulling up his mugshot so I know who to look for when I'm at the airport. Just all that stuff. You need your phone. You use your phone a lot more. You take pictures. You're doing social media posts. You're, so, so you. It's your wallet for most people. Yeah, yeah. Big winner of 2022. My favorite thing to travel abroad with is now AirTags. Apple AirTags. I have them in my giant luggage. People who are not familiar with AirTags, this is a, a Bluetooth RFID device. No, is it RFID? It's, it's battery powered, uh, but it's Bluetooth. But it's not sending out a constant ping at a long range. What it does is it connects to Apple devices that are nearby and connects to the Apple network and says, I am tag number such and such, and I'm here. These are my coordinates. So you put one of those in your main bag? I put one... In both of my, I have two check bags. I have one in my backpack, one in my wallet. In fact, I, including a new one, I will have passport. That's a good idea. I'm going to insist a lot of my clients get passport holder with an AirTag built, uh, AirTag holder built into it. Because I don't know, did I explain the, the legend of the pickle squadron? No, go ahead. <laughs> okay. The Pickle Squadron, the, the old Landscapes tour guides are members of the first Pickle Squadron. And this all comes from my partner and friend, uh, Enrico Grassi, who's a seventh generation Roman, knows Italy you know, really well. And he says, as soon as the tour starts, the air becomes filled with invisible flying <laughs> cucumbers. And you never know when one of those cucumbers are going to fly right up your ass. People losing their passport is what we call a cucumber. <laughs> and it's our job to pull this cucumber out and turn it into a delicious pickle. So that's why everyone who's a tour guide for Late Escapes is a member of the first pickle squadron. And losing the passport is a classic pickle problem. It's a classic cucumber because it always happens at least twice a year. Someone has left their path. Oh, really? So you've had that a few times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's a nightmare. We're panicking, calling and, you know, calling, uh, you know, calling hotels, getting things moved. Someone's going to have to go back and get it. Well, when you're on a tour, particularly one that's bouncing from hotel to hotel, and now you've got to arrange for somebody to go back and get it. Yeah, it's it's a real pain. We've even had people leave their passports on top of gas pumps. You know, at gas stations. So it's just not so. Yes, please, please put an air tag in your uh, in a passport holder that's holding your passport. Save your tour guide some grief and save yourself some paranoia as well. Those are helpful items. I've got more, but we'll do that on a, a, another episode, I guess. Um, and now let's. Uh, I want to bring up what not to do. Told you what you what you should take with you. Here's what you shouldn't do. Yes, let's hear about these faux pas that <laughs> happen overseas. I like to say a tourist goes to see, a traveler goes to understand. And I want people to become travelers and not tourists. And one thing about tourists is the locals hate them. Even when they're making money off them, the locals don't like tourists. Because tourists are usually blitheringly ignorant. But American tourists... Yeah, but yeah, I'm assuming a lot of your audience is from America. There is some stereotypes for the ugly American. 
But there are stereotypes for the ugly German, the ugly Chinese, and yes, there are stereotypes for the ugly Russian, even before, uh, even before last so <laughs> We can all be ugly. I think also when you go overseas, for some reason, you leave, leave a modicum of your brain behind. You just think, I'm on holiday, and you just behave <laughs> a little differently <laughs> without too much thought. <laughs> I got to think about that one. Yeah, because I've seen some pretty dumb stuff done by people who are theoretically supposed to be pretty bright. But anyway, so first off, when you're going abroad, you can't hide. Okay, your body language alone gives you away. You can't blend in. You can't go local. But you know, let's work on getting seen as an interesting and welcomed traveler instead of some ugly American tourist. You know, you can't know your own culture until you leave it. It's hard to say to someone, hey, come on, don't be an ugly American. Well, they really won't know what that is until you actually explain it. Not everyone does these things, okay? But enough of them do that they've become recognized typical things that American tourists do. Okay, what not to wear. This is a painful one because I can spot them. I can spot them in Rome at, at 200 meters. Americans are famous for dressing like slobs. Who's the dude in Rome who's the American tourist? The guy's wearing shorts, flip-flops, a fanny pack, a T-shirt with some phrase on it that doesn't translate, or maybe some U.S. sports team on it, uh, topped up with a baseball cap that's worn backwards. Boom, spotted. Okay, Europe is the type of place where you are not allowed to wear white socks with black pants. Okay, that's considered a fashion like, oh my God, how, what a sleep. No, okay, if, if you're not allowed to wear white socks with black pants, come on. You're not going to the gym. Dress like you're going on a going on a, like a, a second date or something. I mean, come on, just just look a little better, please. Put some effort into it. North Face jackets, <laughs> please leave it at home, because they can spot you instantly. You know you're from the United States, but you know if you think that's bad, the Germans have the exact same identifier. It's called Jack Wolfskin. There's a brand in Germany, and you can spot Germans immediately because they always bring their Jack Wolfskin with them when they go abroad. Why Americans feel compelled to wear a fanny pack when they never would wear one at home, because it's like it's a fashion faux pas, but for some reason when they go abroad, they feel like they have to wear a fanny pack because they need all this extra stuff. You don't need the extra stuff. I've seen tourists walking through Rome with the fanny pack and they're carrying a day pack with tons of stuff in it. It's like, you, you know, people live here. You can, you can buy stuff here in the city. All the locals have managed to survive without carrying a, a backpack, you know, except for the people who are going to work or something. Yeah, uh, it really has to do with, with fear that they're not going to have what they need because they don't know where to find it. As one exception about dressing to go to the gym, people are going to get angry at me because, well, dude, I was just in Barcelona and like everyone's dressed like they're going to the gym. That's because they are. There's a gym like on every block in Barcelona. Um, so do it if you've got the bod to do it as well. So that you you look as though you've been to the gym. Barcelona is filled with some some gorgeous people who who've well who've put some effort into it. They, they they're not necessarily the most beautiful people to begin with, but they've put in some effort into it, and they're really trying to shape up nice. Moving away from clothes and something that is so hard. I explain this to my clients every time I abroad, and they still always forget. For fuck's sake, please shut up. Americans are so loud. 
abroad. Tone it down. The worst is when you're on the subway and you can, even if it's just three Americans, you can hear them all the way from the other end of the car, uh, which is considered horribly rude in Germany. I don't know what it's like in the UK. In the UK, the subway, the, the tube's a bit, a bit louder, but still. No, you don't even make eye contact, so. Right, but. Noise is a no-no. Yeah, it, it, Americans, but it's not just the tube, it's everywhere. It's in the restaurants, it's in the parks, everywhere. And it's not necessarily the tone or volume that they might use at home, but for some reason when they go abroad, they become twice as loud. Well, a lot of people, especially if um, abroad has a different language, if, if the home language is not, you know, the English, English-American, they put the volume up in order to be understood. Yeah, no, this is not when they're speaking to locals. This is when they're speaking to each other. But it's particularly bad in public transit and restaurants. Just, just please, quiet. When I go into, you know, when I'm booking booking tables for my tour groups, I will often tell them, I said, look, I'm, I'm sorry. Is there some place you could put us? Because I'm going to remind them, but you know, you know Americans. They're going to talk loud and they're going to piss off your other guests. So can you put us in a back room or something? Because I know they're going to be loud. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 hot, but yeah, after a while, folks, you know, but it takes some practice. Literally takes some practice. Yeah, it's a natural enthusiasm. You just have to calm it a bit. Uh for people who've never been abroad before, don't be surprised that things are different. Okay. Uh, okay, especially when it comes to like, okay, restaurants and food. You don't get free tap water. And you probably shouldn't ask for it. I don't know. It's kind of gauche to tacky to ask for tap water. Many cultures do not have a retail persona. This sort of fake visage of positive happiness for everyone who comes through the door. It's someone who's just speaking to you normally. They aren't being rude to you. It's just you're not supposed to have this happy, bubbly personality just because you're a server or you work in retail. I particularly like this about the Germans. You are not going to get a smile out of a German unless it's real. So you kind of, you, you have a better idea where you stand. Yes, then you know. Yeah, you don't get ice in your drink. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of weird. All right, sorry, nope, it's not going to happen. In places that get lots of travelers and tourists, there might be English menus, but because English is sort of the default secondary language for everybody, so it's kind of a popular thing. But you know what? Get Practice at pulling out your, your cell phone and using Google Translate and, and, and translating it yourself. It's kind of fun. You know, embrace yourself in the experience that things are different and you're going to have to figure your stuff out. And it's just kind of fun. Don't. I've had two, two groups of guys I took back to back. One were just all futzy and unhappy and I had to go through and they were upset with me because I had to translate the menu for them and help each person order. Whereas the next group I came and I came back from the bathroom and they've all got their phones out and they're translating the menu. And I'm like, oh, all right, my people, you, you get it. <laughs> you know, we're abroad. You're figuring it out. Yeah. And if the wrong meal turns up, it's just a happy little accident. This is a, a low cost adventure, really. Food. Don't ask for substitutions at the restaurant. It's it's considered rude. No, no, that is not a thing anywhere else except here in America. Right. It's considered rude to the chef, and you can be damn sure that the, the waiter or waiter or waitress is not going to want to tell the chef to, to, to <laughs> do it. That's a conversation they don't want to have. Most of the time in the EU, you pay your server directly. They have no problem doing separate checks. This is not a like a terrifying thing. 
But they just go from person to person. They think, you know, there's like, oh yeah, you had this, this ship, this ship, boom, 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 boom. You know, it's I don't know why this is such a big deal in the United States, but it is. Uh, and it, it's an enormous amount of stress. Whereas in, in Europe, it's like, yeah, just pay separately. Please stop tipping ridiculous amounts of money. In Europe and Germany, it's sort of like it's never more than 10%. Most of the time, it's just a roundup to the nearest you know, euro or, or, or pound or whatever. If you're trying to tip oh, tip wait staff, if you're trying to give them big money, it almost can be seen as insulting. They're like, what? You don't think I make money here? This is a job. I do a good job. I get paid good money. Quit trying to give me... Yeah, it's... It's, a, it's a, probably an American thing, trying to solve things with money is a very American thing. It's just different culturally. I think you're right. They do get a good salary and um, don't rely on tips in the way that uh, serving staff do here in the USA. There are, in England, you would tip certain people. Your hairdresser comes to mind. I don't know why. Ah, all right. <laughs> Well, that's good. Maybe it's dangerous if you get a bad job there. It's kind of a bit of a, <laughs> a period of time before you correct again. A, a bit of bribery. <laughs> Otherwise, you can come out looking like it, looking like an album cover from the 80s or something. <laughs> All right. I know that people get a craving now and again, but can you please avoid McDonald's while you're abroad? You're supposed to be visiting a new place and trying new things. This is by learning all you can. Can can you avoid McDonald's while you're taking a vacation? <laughs> but here's another one. USA tourists are famous for eating while walking. Stop. Take a moment. This is one of the best ways you can see the world is to sit and watch it go by, particularly over a good meal. You know, I love the Pantheon in Rome, and there's a bunch of cafes near the Pantheon. They're all overpriced. They're all filled with tourists. But you know what? I'll pay it. Just to sit down, have myself some, you know, pasta, gelato, or some little dessert thingy, and and wa I'll watch the world go by, and that includes I'll watch the tourists as well. It's a great pastime. Some people watching. Oh yeah, no, but, but I say, come on, it's a very American thing to be very goal oriented, and we, we have to see this, 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 we have this things on our list, and we have to get in as much time as possible. It's like no. Did you learn anything about Rome today? Did Did you learn anything about Brussels? Sit down and just watch Brussels, you know, watch the world go by, you know, and enjoy your food. For some reason, I don't know why this is, but USA people just got to clap. You can you know, spot them. You know, boom, they're the first people to start clapping. Back off a little bit on the clapping. Might want to do, might not want to do any of the whistling either, because that can mean very different things in in very in different places. In the Czech Republic, whistling is the same as is is yelling out boo. You know, would be or, or saying you thought the show was shit. Yeah, so sit, sit, sit down. That includes, you know, when you're in the restaurant and the the waiter or waitress drops a tray or a, a dish. No, no cheering, no round of applause. Just stop it. <laughs> That's not something they do. Well, but but Americans instinctively just want to clap and and whistle. They say, "Yay!" I don't know why we do it, but that's an American thing. It's not something that's, that happens abroad. Avoid using slang words and sports references. This can be hard. You're actually going to have to think about it. English is a default second language in many places, but it's still the second language. So you kind of got to be patient. Always use the local greeting, even if you think they, even if you can't speak it perfectly, just, just give it a shot. 
you know, kill. Buongiorno. Guten Tag. Servus. In northern Germany, I say moin. You know, it's just, you just, just give it a try. Most of the time, people will notice that your accent is, is pretty bad, but they'll at least appreciate it. Yes, I think I think you're right. They do appreciate if you've made the effort. I saw that the Dutch supposedly don't like it when you try to speak Dutch. And then I check with my Dutch friends. They're like, no, no, please try. We will help you. I said, okay. Learn how to ask in the local language if you can speak English with them. Couldn't you with me English sprechen? You know, I, I, I know this word, I know this phrase really well, because my German, while good, is nowhere near as, as good as most of their English. You being from the UK might just get a real roaring laugh out of this one. Please, folks from the USA, when you're abroad, do not attempt to disguise your accent. It won't work. <laughs> <laughs> okay? If you're trying to talk like the Queen when you're in London, it's really not going to go over well. And your, your 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 fake Cockney accent it will be a source of great humor, <laughs> and, and you know people can call me out on this because because since I come from all over the places I pick up accents like so easily and it's hard for me to get rid of them. That I don't really have a California accent anymore. And if I'm in Germany, I will have a German accent just for a little bit so that I can speak it kind of often. Uh, I pick up accents really easily, but I always sort of kind of halfway it. So people could call me out on that one and say, Kat, you sound like a moron. You know, fix your accent. Here's a tough one. So this is a deeper one. In USA culture, relationships are more uh, disposable. People are often on the look for a new sort of next friend. Probably the only culture in the world that proudly wears T-shirts, you know, that'll say like zero fucks given and, and or, or celebrate certain memes that, you know, says, yeah, I'm going to cut this person loose or that. But we're, we're very easy to, to, to let people loose and whatnot. Conversely, this makes Americans be seen as kind of overly friendly, kind of fake and often sharing way too much information with strangers. Or sort of insist on meaningless small talk. Uh, not every culture does small talk. And if English is a second language, small talk can be really challenging and kind of confusing. They won't understand what you're trying to do. What? Why, does, why is this guy always talking about the weather? I guess I see it. The sun is out. But is, <laughs> what? Why does he always do this? Yeah, it's, there's also the thing about... a. a a lot of times Americans, uh, the, the culture is very positive. We're like overly positive. The French, <laughs> probably overly negative. The French have got one foot in the grave and the, the Americans are parting it up. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's, it's, you know, but nobody loves a protest more than the French. They love to protest. They love to argue. It's, it's part of being French. You know, I mean, the French have uh, have dear friends that they've known since childhood that they will that they love to argue with. They get together at the cafe and they argue, and that's just what they do. It's part of French culture. You're gonna laugh at this one, okay? Uh, many Americans are freaked out by nudity. Yes. <laughs> okay. Just, just, just please, just get you know, get over it. Just, just. Take a calm breath and just sort of walk away, uh, uh, particularly in Europe, you know, because uh, where their sex is just sort of an enjoyable fact of life, where in the United States it's kind of seen as sort of shameful obsession. It's just skin. It's just a statue. 
if you're really uncomfortable with it, just 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 quietly walk away and and don't. Oh, I thought you were talking about all the topless sunbathing on the beaches. Center center of Berlin. If it's a nice day outside in Berlin, you will you will see that. Boom, trousers are dropped. <laughs> you know, folks are folks are laying out in the sun. I think sometimes the more further north you get, where where sunlight is kind of a rarity the more sure that people are just going to start peeling off layers as soon as there's sunlight available. The Norwegians are hilarious. If, if you're on a, a ferry between two points and it's sunny outside, the Norwegians gather on the top deck and will pull off their shirts and they sort of lean back and sort of pivot themselves around like, like their chests are big solar collectors. And they pivot their arms out to collect as much sun as possible. You know, it's good for you, a bit of vitamin D. People desperately need their vitamin D. And so they really, they really try to catch it. But, you know, that's, was, uh, the Norwegians also uh, like the, are similar to the English in that they will, it, it may be wet and rainy and cold, but they, they're, they're going to convince themselves that the weather is actually better than it looks because they're going to have themselves an ice cream. Norwegians consume a ridiculous amount of ice cream. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. The huge arrays of all these great, uh, great lollies, various different confections and whatnot in Norway. Um, I love it. Anyway, I'm getting, getting off topic. But so really just Bringing it back, so, I mean, obviously there, there's more to talk about, but uh, we'll save for the next time. But in the meantime, you know, pack light, be a traveler, not a tourist, and especially for you all, do it on two wheels, because that's the best way to see the world. It sure is. <laughs> well, it's very, very, um, a lot of um, food for thought there. That's great information, <laughs> because, you know, a lot of it might seem obvious, but um, unless you start to bring these these things out, even one little point can be helpful. Yeah, well, let's see. I mean, I've got more items and more stuff for the culture as well. How to do laundry abroad. What is that? This is an ultrasonic cleaner. Wow. I literally dropped this in a sink with suds. So I'm not wringing out my clothes and whatnot. Yeah. Didn't know there was such a thing. I just like slooshed them around a bit. Yeah. You got to clean them out and then uh, grunt, grunt line. It's uh, so you don't have to bring any clothespins with you. It's this sort of rub, it's braided. Yeah, well, luckily in most of the cooler cooler countries, they have um, radiators. Right. I haven't seen one for years, but you can hang your smalls on the radiators and they're nice and crispy in the morning. <laughs> that only works in countries when the radiators are on. Most of the time when I get there, they're not <laughs> because I'm there in the summer months. And if you put your clothes on the radiator and it's not working, it doesn't dry. And then your clothes get covered in all the dust that was on the radiator. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, you're helping somebody along there. <laughs> yeah, but I, I do take particular pleasure in staying at four-star resorts and hanging my laundry out on the balcony. <laughs> well, the customer is always right. It, it would seem a bit tacky. I don't think I could ever do it at a Four Seasons, but then thankfully I don't have to go to Four Seasons anymore. Have you had a, a most embarrassing person on tour with you that stands out? I think we covered that one on the last one, didn't we? The guy's uh, wife who left him for another woman, but she cut the cut out the other woman part, which I thought was interesting. Oh yes, but that was that's what killed. Yeah, oh geez, it was horrible. <laughs> Don't take yourself back there. It's all good now. Yeah, no, the um, really the most embarrassing thing that happens is guaranteed to happen almost every tour, particularly in the tours where uh, in Munich because I have to get people on the on the subway to the welcome dinner. 
welcome dinner, Subway. I've told them in the, the writer's briefing that afternoon, guaranteed, as soon as they get into the Subway, they start, start yapping at double volume. And all the local Germans are sort of like looking at them like... Oh. Giving them the old stink eye. They, Germans don't do that, but they just sort of like, they just sort of like quietly look away and kind of shake their head. And most Americans don't even notice it. That, that yeah, they're actually talking about you because they're busy enjoying themselves. <laughs> right, right. Well, they have, well, they're meeting new people, and it's exciting. And oh, isn't this interesting? <laughs> that the door of the train doesn't open on its own. You've got to pull the light switches are upside down. <laughs> right, right. And that's just Americans being Americans. They don't. They really don't know any better. They can't help themselves. They automatically do it, and that's the worst one. And people will even make fun of me about it halfway through the tour. Like, oh, we're being quiet, cat. I'm like, good. Thank you. <laughs> well, we look forward to, to some more gems when we catch up next time. <laughs> All right, hopefully, so you don't have as much to go through this time because that was a lot. That last one was really hefty. Yeah, no, I'm sure this will be interesting as well, just shorter. <laughs> okay. All right, lovely. Thanks for your time, as usual, Kat.